for the team's a bunch of badasses if you know what I mean They're coming out of the sky, out of the sea And on land gonna take it to the enemy Hey folks, uh, Commander Mark Devine coming at you from sunny Encinitas, California, where it feels like it's 95 degrees right here, and humid, which is rare. Anyway, um, I am totally stoked today to have a fellow teammate named Thomas Shea join us for the podcast. Uh, but before we get started, let me remind you that if you're not on our email list, then you're missing out. So go to sealfit.com and put your name in our email list so that you can um, stay abreast of all the really cool things that we have happening and special offers and things that we only let you know by email, which is quite a bit. So Thomas and I have actually just just met by Skype. We haven't met in person. Or I don't, I'm not sure if we uh, our paths crossed. They may have in the SEALs, but Tom is a 23-year Navy veteran, spent 19 of those uh, 23 years in the Navy SEALs. A very, very interesting career, uh, multiple combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan toward the latter end. Uh, he has a Silver Star, Bronze Star with Valor, multiple accommodation medals, very, very good reputation, solid reputation, as you know, in the SEAL teams, reputation is your currency, and he had uh, several gold bars attached to his. Thomas has recently got out, retired in... Uh, 2012, I think he told me. No, 14. 14, 2014, yeah. yeah. So it hasn't been that long. And um, on the way out, what we're going to talk about today is he wrote a, a, a fascinating book uh, on his last deployment, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas, but if I get the story right, he wrote it for his, for his children in the event that he didn't return from the battlefield. And uh, it's really poignant and very, very direct, and it's, it's rare. And so I, I thought it was definitely worth having a conversation about, and that Thomas Shea was someone that Unbeal Mind peeps needed to, uh, needed to meet and read his book. So Tom, thank you for joining me today. It's super cool to meet you, and uh, thanks for your book. Thanks for your service. Sure. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. By the way, the, I, I didn't mention, but the book's title is Unbreakable, which is pretty cool because Unbeatable is the name of my, one of my <laughs> companies, so <laughs> Unbreakable, Unbeatable. That works for me. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, why don't you? Uh, why don't we start a little bit uh, near the beginning? What, what uh, drew you into the seals? You must have been in the navy for a little while, and probably got tired of chipping paint, or what happened to you? No, it's actually the to probably totally the opposite. I uh, I had gone to West Point right out of high school, made it through my third year, and failed out in English after three years at West Point. No kidding. And uh, which I think is funny now that I ended up having a book that I wrote. <laughs> Clearly, that, they, they didn't understand you at the time. Yeah, they didn't. I didn't understand me either. So, uh, so then I kind of, you know, what most young kids do after they fail is they kind of try to lick their wounds. And I, I felt like some unfinished business. I wanted to be in the military. And uh, so I ended up graduating from Ball State University. And found that it was more important to me to be a warrior than it was to uh, work in the business community. Right. So I was signed up directly into the SEAL program the, quite some time ago. It was an old program called Die Fair where you mm -hmm. could sign up directly for mm -hmm. and then uh, made it into the program. So that was kind of the delays, a little army delay, and then ended up taking me forever to make it through. I was in four hell weeks 
then I got turned out, and then I made it back finally and made it through, not unscathed, but uh, <laughs> finally made it through Class 207. Congratulations. Four Hell Weeks is no joke. So that 23 years included the three years at West Point? Does that make sense? Is that what that was? Uh, yes, and the uh, period of time trying to make it through SEAL training. <laughs> so. That's awesome. So uh, where did you serve your e early uh, years in the SEALs? I initially uh, went through the 18 Delta program, so that ended up being, felt like forever. And then I was assigned to SEAL Team 2, spent five or six years at SEAL Team 2 doing several deployments. Mm -hmm. And then I became an instructor in BUDS mm -hmm. and then ended up at Team 7, then sniper school, and then I was in charge of research and development during my final two years. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty uh, rare to only serve at two teams for extended yeah. periods of time. That's that's a nice way to do it, actually, isn't it? Yeah. I think uh, officers have a different cut on it than enlisted. I think we stay a little more stagnant. We're not stagnant, but stay put a little longer than you guys did. Right, right. Yeah. So let's talk about some philosophy. Okay. What to, to, you know? What what is your concept of the warrior, like to you, you know, to you, what is a warrior? Hmm. Uh, I see very little difference between philosophy and application, mm -hmm. uh, because if you're a true philosopher, you're actually doing the things that are in your head to do. Yeah. How that translates, uh, at least uh, as you're asking it, to what I conceptualize as a warrior is somebody willing to take everything they are, not just the things they've done, but they are inside, outside, family included, mm -hmm. uh, into battle against somebody else. Uh, that's how I would conceptualize it. Since you didn't ask me this a couple of days ago, you're, you just sniper shot me and I'm reacting. <laughs> so, uh, I think it's the total person, as you mentioned earlier. The true warrior uses everything all the time. Right. And I think that's why there's so few good ones. Right. That's how I would initially look at it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's pretty close to the mark. I love that. So in the SEAL teams, you know, my experience is that the SEAL teams are, you know, like a lot of organization. It, it attracts more authentic warriors than the rest. But I wouldn't say that everyone in the SEALs is a warrior based upon the definition that you just gave. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, it's a pretty unique experience to lead other warriors in combat, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm drawn to the work of uh, Stephen Pressfield and his Gates of Fire, you know, probably one of the best writers of the day in terms of capturing that warrior ethos and that warrior spirit. And what was it like for you uh, to be in combat with other men that you would lay your life down for? Well, just uh, so that your, your listeners understand the difference between possibly what you have talked about, your leadership from the officer point of view, from what, uh, or what I'm going to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a platoon chief, and the platoon chief is responsible to the men and the tactics, right. from my point of view. Mm -hmm. And the tactics are how you actually do the business of war. The officers, from my point of view, are responsible to the strategy of the battle, how everything is playing out, and not necessarily 
uh, solely dedicated to the tactics. Correct. They're not necessarily doing all the shooting. They could be, but so what I what I found is that had to be very attuned to what the guys were actually capable of doing, not what you wanted them to do. Mm-hmm. And you asked, you know, what, how do you lead warriors? From my point of view, I had a herd of lions that don't like authority, mm-hmm. reject it wholesale, and the tighter rein that I put on them, the less capable they were. So that was a, it's a different style of leadership. It may just be unique to the SEAL community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I took it on as instead of leading them, providing them with what they needed to be successful. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, listening was more important than me dictating. Because I could see it out in my mind how things would work out. If they couldn't see it that way, it was a total waste of time. So <laughs> uh, I had to get I, one thing I learned in combat that I actually talk about openly now is I had to kind of get out of my own way mm-hmm. and let the men necessarily dictate what we were going to do. If they right. couldn't figure it out, there was no use us even trying. Right. And then if they needed small things, they needed a can of Copenhagen or water. That was what my mission was to get them that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I took uh, control if you know because they 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 see pinpoint you know solutions. I had the kind of a broader solution, mm-hmm. but I would say it was one in fifty that I would dictate what we do. So my my form of leadership is that the men count more than my point of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, you go ahead. How often did you find you know that the you couldn't come to a consensus and you just had to step in and make the call. Well, there's uh, two ways to answer that. Uh, the first way is during training. So that year and a half that you have with that group early on, I, I was dictating and training. So mm-hmm. I was training my guys to be functional in whatever area. So I may have to then in early stages, tell them what to do. And then more up front, I was dictating the pace and what the tempo was and what we were to, what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And then I was learning from them at the same time what they were capable of doing. Mm-hmm. In combat, it was the re- was the reverse. I think uh, all I had to do was give them what, where, and when, what we're going to do, where we're going to do it, and when we expect to start and stop. Mm-hmm. then release the hounds and they would they would have a better solution because yeah. the front five guys in the in the train they know what's going to happen mm-hmm. i don't necessarily know because mm-hmm. they're the ones facing life or death so they would come up with solutions that were far beyond what i thought was possible mm-hmm. and they were capable of doing them mm-hmm. and uh, so uh very rarely in combat that i have to step in mm-hmm what were some of the biggest challenges you found in as a SEAL leader, as a warrior leader? Uh, I also break that down into those two different paradigms, yeah. pre-combat and combat. Mm-hmm. Pre-combat was trying to ensure that they had the skills necessary to, to be effective. During that period of time, making sure that their families were set up, which they never thought were important until combat. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. 
and they had time to uh, absorb the training. So I also, during that period of time, told them that uh, we're going to push far beyond what you thought, what you think you're capable of doing, mm-hmm. and that we're going to push everything to failure. And I don't really care in training if we ever win. I want to see how things fall apart. Mm-hmm. So that took, I, I don't know if I was unique in that. I, I actually want things to fail so we can see what we can work on. Mm-hmm. So now in combat, what was needed was, or I think is actually funny, the warrior paradigm that you're talking about isn't how hard combat is because combat becomes a welcome place for a SEAL because if you never win in training, when you actually get over to combat, the actual art and science of combat, of risking your life, you can actually find a way to win. Mm-hmm. Training you never did. So the combat became welcome and easy. It's all the ancillary things that surround that, that became what I think other units fall apart because they don't begin to understand it. Uh, because emotionally you want to, you, you give up. There's no way around saying that. Mm-hmm. You know, extended time in combat, whether it's five minutes or, or 50 days, that five minutes could be your whole life. Mm-hmm. That affects guys, and nobody, lines don't want to talk about the fact that they want to quit. They actually do uh, emotionally, and then my job was to bring them back into the game of being here in this moment. Mm-hmm. And it's hard when you're in combat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spent all my time making sure the guys were handled uh, emotionally, what was going on in their head, mm-hmm. how that, the, the, the shape of that obviously varied with each guy. But let me, be- talk, let me dig into that a little yeah. bit, because I read somewhere in your book that um, you know, SEALs don't like to talk about failure, and so the way you handle a failure or you know, a, a breakdown was just to get the guy moving forward again. And that, yeah. that sounds you know, pretty practical to me, and I would agree with that. And so was that, that your experience, that you, know, as you weren't trying to be a counselor to these guys. You were more just noticing where they were having uh, breakdowns and, and struggling, and you were just getting, them, getting their heads back in the game in a positive manner, something like yeah. that. Yeah, Yeah. so uh, case in point, I wrote about it in the book. Uh, the Third, we were in country for third day. We're th- three days. We're stationed out of Kandahar, and on the third day, we were on our first combat mission. And during that combat mission, obviously, we're in combat, so uh, it's a lot of bullets were flying. Two Afghani commandos get their legs blown off. Bone fragments from the legs go into the face of one of my new guys. And that time period after, like two days after. He basically came back, took a shower, and slept. Hmm. And I know, because I was a little older, that, uh, and I had gone through some tough combat experiences, that period of time for people uh, can be tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the discussions between he and I were, you know, from his point of view, were, hey, what's going on? And he wouldn't tell me. So what I had to do was inject. I'm like, hey, I know you don't want to be here anymore. And just talk about it openly. And uh, I know you're worried that you're not going to make it back to your wife and you'll never see your dad again. Having already gone through it, I wanted him to be able to talk about it. And when he started to talk about it, 
Because when you're dealing with it, you don't want to engage today. You don't want to do anything. And his body wasn't doing anything. So in the experience of talking about it, he started to get encouraged about getting back involved with what was going on at that moment. So what I did is I knew that he was a, he and I had gone hunting several times prior to deployment. I said, hey, why don't you take our guns out and take the guys out and take them shooting? And so that experience of getting him back into this moment, not dwelling on, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And I have, he was worried about getting, you know, uh, hepatitis C from all the blood that was everywhere. And, and he had sutures in his face. He got back involved in the moment. And that really is more, empower, more powerful than hey, telling the guy to do something, mm -hmm. giving him an order. So he found a way to encourage himself by, hey, let's just get back to the platoon. They actually love me, too. So, mm -hmm. you know. And he, two hours of shooting, he came back and he was engaged again. Mm -hmm. And he became like a divining rod for finding IEDs, though. No kidding. <laughs> Rob went left. Everybody went left with him because he walked around probably 70 uh, mines uh, and saved, saved our bacon every time. Holy crap. Even though he didn't want to be in the front, I put him <laughs> in the front because he saved us all the time. Fascinating. But, uh, yeah. I guess really the case is... Uh, bringing people back into the moment makes them more powerful. Right. That's what a warrior is. This moment is the only thing that counts. Right. And uh, guys that have that capability see re solutions and results in situations that are hell, and they find a way to uh, laugh and carry on in the middle of that, that maelstrom. Because mm -hmm. they're not dwelling on all the things that just happened or that could happen and Never, my platoon was never woe as me. That's terrific. Yeah. I love that, and I think you're spot on with that. The, you know, the warrior trains relentlessly, largely to keep themselves in a, in a obviously, you know, on the path to self-mastery and, and keeping yourselves ready for, for anything, but also partly to, to keep from... To keep from having to have idle time where, you know, your mind becomes the devil's playground. And, yes, it and does. And so, you know, by staying busy and staying present, then you're right. That's where you have the most power and the most positivity. Mm -hmm. and, you know, by, by letting your mind dwell too much in the future or the past, especially if you're not using your mind in an appropriate and positive manner in the future and past states, mm -hmm. it can be very debilitating. I think a lot of people don't really appreciate that, that that's a skill. And it sounds like you developed that pretty early on and you helped your guys kind of stay, stay focused and positive in the present. That's critical. I, I like the way you call that a skill. I think that's the primary skill. Yeah. The body will do anything you ask it to do, which right. you, I mean, you know probably more than anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, but if, and very few people train the mind, right. maybe 10%. But the, when the mind is mastered, mm -hmm. the body goes, okay. Yeah, let's do just this. Just agree to what you're asking it to do. And you can ask it to do anything. Right. To find out it's doing that anyway. So why not pay more attention to what is going on in here, whatever that mind concept is. And you probably have your distinctions. Right. I love yours, your use of the term internal dialogue because it's more than positive self-talk in the way that the way that I see you using the term is essentially to create the entire internal, you know, architecture of thought, right? Mm -hmm. So then 
you are in control of the dialogue and then the dialogue's dictating the movement of the body. Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean, how did you come up with that or what, you know, where does, what does the internal dialogue mean to you? I would, a dialogue, unlike a monologue, is two ways. So mm -hmm. the dialogue is getting fed from the senses mm -hmm. and then dictating, I don't know if dictating is the right term, but then reporting back what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Internally, how I could break it down, and, and I do this with clients, and I wish I was faster at doing it. To flesh it out in detail would take time, uh, but ultimately, the moment you say you are capable of doing something, you start in motion to prove it. Mm -hmm. Counter to that, the moment you say something is impossible, in the mo and you, you are then in motion to prove that that's impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, how it comes out in combat is this, your, sense, your sensory overloaded. And if you're not careful, you stop. Because the, the world outside in combat is going, oh, hell, you don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. You have to go there. You have to push into those spaces that are not, not only uncomfortable, but your dialogue is telling you, oh, my God, you're going to die. And if you don't master that, you go there and die. Mm -hmm. The mastering of it is, I don't know if it's being calm. It's saying, hey, listen, this is who I am, and I'm going to move forward. Mm -hmm. and, and that small element of dictating what you're capable of doing without having it be validated prior to you saying it, that is what I think is powerful because you mm -hmm. can you're in, I don't know how much combat experience you had, but for some reason my wife put a numbers, an hours down to how many hours I was in combat. No kidding. What, like 2,700 hours of active combat. Having lived in that experience, I noticed that if I told myself something wasn't going to work, it never could work. Right. And in the moment, uh, I had this... I call it, I guess, an epiphany. Uh, we were overrun by 65 Taliban, and there were 12 of us. Hmm. And I just had a rocket explode, push me into the back of a room, and uh, I'm laying on the ground. And like every human being, you look up and you say, oh, my God, I'm dead. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get my body to respond because it was just telling. It was then going, okay, you want to die? Then we're going to sit here and die. And in that moment... I don't know how long it lasted. I really don't. I remember my wife saying, don't fear dying. It makes you weak. Mm -hmm. Fight your way back to us. And I remember sitting up going, oh, hell, I got to fight my way back. The only thing that changed there was what I'm calling dialogue. Mm -hmm. Didn't mean I was more capable, mm -hmm. but I started getting in action to prove that point. And then a series of 45-minute battle after 45 minutes we're out of rounds out of grenades out of everything and thank god a b1 bomber checked on and we had him drop a bomb danger close and ends up killing everybody but us within the 300 yard swath and <laughs> good god and i wanted to quit all the time right. the whole time i had to fight this sit down and it was terrible I don't know, 45 minutes doesn't seem long. I could go out and run 45 minutes. But in the middle of that, you're, the battle is always inside. Mm -hmm. 
And when you overcome that inside battle and just keep in motion, mm -hmm. that's the hardest thing to do. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the, the, what the genesis of the book started at that moment. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that was awesome. You mentioned Stacy, and you talk about her being a Spartan wife in your book. And I think... Um, yeah, I think about, you know, my wife is, is, I wouldn't call her a Spartan wife, but she's a very strong and amazing woman. But she was not, she was not like Stacy in that she did not want me to be in combat. And one of the reasons that I got out of the Navy was because I had this conflict. And I think you see that a lot with SEALs. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I recognized it right away. And I said, okay, if, if this woman doesn't support me as a warrior going into combat and she's going to be home, I'm going to, it's going to create this emotional breach where I won't be able to succeed. And so I made a very conscious choice, you know, either it's either the SEALs or without this woman or I get mm -hmm. out. And I was able to stay in the reserves, of course, because that was a little bit different. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's why the divorce rate is near 70% because the women mm -hmm. a lot of times don't back the SEAL when he's gone and when he, you know, and, and, and then the SEAL feels that breach, right, emotionally or psychically. Yeah. But Stacy was different, you know. She was a Spartan wife, and I love that distinction. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, the reason why I called it Spartan wife—that was the original title of the book. That title didn't make it through the edit for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But uh, the one point I wanted my kids to to get in the advent that I did not return to tell them that was that without a woman wholesale in your corner yeah. men don't achieve mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't want to talk about it mm -hmm. you, can, you can achieve quite a bit having separate lives like my wife does this and I do this mm -hmm. Stacy came from previous marriage that wasn't I had come from a previous marriage that wasn't so we talk and talked openly about that when we kind of generating our relationship before we got married. Mm -hmm. Here's the deal. This is my life, and this is yours. I don't want it to be separate. If we're going to do something, we're going to do it together, or we're simply not going to do it, pursue it at all. Mm -hmm. And that's not still not easy. Just saying it doesn't make it, oh, yeah, we're going to get along. But mm -hmm. we have created out of that conversation of we're going to do everything together, made us more capable and definitely made me more capable. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I say it made my platoon more capable because I was more sensitive to the fact that that may not be going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instead of working till five every day, hey, guys, go home and, you know, be with your wife, whether you love her or not, or something. Right. But stay connected the best you can as long as you can. And... Uh, I, she, she ended up realizing that the more she embraced what I was doing, the easier it was for us to get along. Mm -hmm. The easier it was for me to talk openly and authentically about, oh my God, I'm scared. Because mm -hmm. if you lead a separate life, you don't share that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our conversations back and forth were me falling apart over there and her saying, pull it together. Pull your freaking boots back on. <laughs> Quitting now doesn't help because you're still there. So she kept it engaged 
and it really just brings you back to being in the moment. Okay, I can do this one more day. And that was, after three months, you're just living day to day. And uh, so a lot of, lot of intimate conversations back and forth about what I was going through and then what she was going through. It also made me listen to all her problems mm-hmm. instead of, hey, I don't have time. Like my life is more real than hers. It never occurred to me that way. The more I could connect with her, allow her to connect with me, it made for a, a, like moving into an unknown space a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And that unknown space is, is what destroys, seems to uh, possibly destroy relationships because they're unwilling to move in that unknown space called let's do it together. Mm-hmm. Seems easier to be separate. Mm-hmm. And uh, our problem is we marry really beautiful girls and then we leave them alone. I know. And we don't know as young kids how to deal with that. Right. Especially out of you know out of the university like you your mm-hmm. your path and, and the young kids right out of high school or right out of you know failing out of a job or or college. They don't have any life skills. Mm-hmm. And then uh, here's an athletic guy that a hot woman wants to be around, and it's cool. And then she's alone, and it seems like they're separate. But we, Stacy and I, were able to stay together, and that's why I use the term Spartan because, the, at least in my reading of the Spartan women, is that they were all in. Right. Yeah, it was a partnership for sure. So that's what we. I recommend it, but I don't recommend it at the same time. Right. But uh, yeah, it's it's a whole different life. It's a tough one for sure, you know. And all the the women out there who are married to the military and soft guys kind of obviously understand it. And what I love about this idea, though, is like there's, you know, it's one thing to um, put a lot of energy on like the Omsbudman program and NSW Foundation supporting the families who are home, and all that is really important. But what separated, you know, you guys apart from maybe the ordinary or the 70% is it wasn't just making sure that the family was okay at home, but actually in sync with you and supporting you. And mm-hmm. that's a, that's a huge deal because, you know, you may know that your family is taken care of financially and they've got some friends and, you know, everything's good at home. But if at the same time they're not, you know, if the same time the woman is every time you're having a conversation, you know, crying for you to come home and telling you that she can't handle you being mm-hmm. away and that type of thing, then that creates this huge emotional drain, emotional oh. drag on the, on the warrior who needs to stay focused on combat. And so I love this notion of you know, a, a co-dialogue like you guys had, a shared dialogue about, hey, we're in this together. I'm, I'm here to support you. What do you need? How, do, how can I support you? What do you need from me? And then vice versa, you know, how can I support you? Stacy, what do you need from me? And then both of you feel complete, like you're supporting each other. And now I can go fight my war and keep my guys safe and bring them home. And she can take care of the family. And there's no, you know, I wish he was here. And I, or, you yeah. Know, and that, that's a real, like I said, that's it's, a little bit of a game. And I, I wish I had been able to articulate it better when I was actually in and, and help foster it among more among the community. But yeah. Uh, there is that weird paradigm of, uh, I guess the best way to say it is where you don't want your wife to know. And a lot of guys don't share openly what is going on at work. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that yourself, the woman can't be available to share her life with you. So then it creates separate. And just as long as you're separate, 
she has problems she can't talk about and you have problems you can't talk about and then they become the most paramount things that are going on regardless of what the other person's doing right uh so the woman then focuses on i'm falling apart i can't take it anymore because mm-hmm. that's a separate life mm-hmm. when you're doing it together the conversation comes up very early and you're able to listen to it and, and help assist in what they're going through and you know funny story not relevant but it, it could it's a funny one so i had just gotten off of the uh, 48 hours of uh, real hard combat in afghanistan and uh we would get on you know skype and talk so i open up the computer and she opens it up and she goes hey tom i have a problem i'm like well so do i <laughs> she goes well we thought we had an intruder in the house and i cocked the the pistol and now i can't decock it <laughs> i'm like oh, god okay so <laughs> significant for her insignificant for me right but i didn't make her wrong for sharing it and uh then she was able to listen to what i was going through which i thought was uh, important as well yeah as, as opposed to me dictating hey my problems are bigger than yours and her, that was significant to her yeah, because the end of the she didn't want anybody in the room. She didn't <laughs> go in the room, so the gun was going to go off, and uh, but it was it was fun times. But <laughs> what role did faith play with you guys as a couple, or or you individually? I don't think it's possible to live well for a long time in combat as a warrior unless you have a distinction that there is a God out there. Everybody has their own opinion of it, and I'm not going to dictate my opinion to the world. Mm -hmm. I always say that I kind of work for St. Michael or the Archangel Michael. (laughs) Right. Not the shape that it takes, the measurable shape that spirituality plays with Stacy and I, uh, is that everything is connected across time, space, and distance. That's one distinction called religion. It's always available, and the more that you get how things are connected, the more you can create deeper connections. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I don't mean to not answer that in the prescribed method, but uh, it's always there. Right. That's cool. So when you you said that kind of the idea for the book, Unbreakable, by the way, um, Mm -hmm. Unbreakable, for, for you folks out there listening, is... Has just uh, Tom has just signed with a new publisher, so it's it's literally just taken off the market in its current form, and it'll be republished and available on October twenty seventh in uh, hard copy. So um, you're gonna have to wait till then, unless you can find a used copy. And I've got a copy here. If someone wants to stop by, seal fit and borrow it from me, <laughs> because it's well worth the read if you don't want to wait. But anyways, back to you, Tom. A little station break there. Um, Tell, tell us about the book. I mean, it started out as an, a thought that you had that, you know, if you, don't want, if you don't see your children again, you want them to know, you want them to know your kind of, this, you wanted them to know things. Like, mm-hmm. You wanted them to know things about you and your wife. And, and, but what else? Like, where did the book kind of actually take shape? And, well, it took shape uh, two days before deployment. Stacy and I were laying in bed together. And you, if you remember those times, they're tough. You can't talk very well because it's already emotional. And she 
basically said, I want you to write down everything that is important for you to write to the kids. And so that was kind of the genesis of it, you know, write down what you want them to know. I thought that was harder than combat because I had this stigma called I failed out of West Point in English hmm. and writing to me was difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, so as I began to write, I said, I'm just going to write as raw as I can what we're going through, what I want the kids to benefit from, from my experiences. So as it developed through, it was a lot of emails back and forth, a lot of jotted notes and, and dirt and, you know, on, on different, you know, papers. And, but then when I came back, there was no impetus to or no excitement to complete it. And uh, Stacy inadvertently shared that with uh, a friend of ours. And he tasked me with, why don't you compile it and make it fluid? So then it took me nine months post-deployment to sit down and write it from left to right mm -hmm. uh, in some kind of linear sequence. And as I began to rewrite it and rethink about it, there ended up being 13 tasks that I wanted the kids to be able to do. Just I wanted to give that to them. So the original idea is, you know, even though I'm back from deployment, I want you, in case something else happens, and I'm not available to you, if you can do these 13 things, then you'll have a great life or an unbreakable life. So that's really what happened. And uh, the, 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 the practice of writing was a total miserable experience. <laughs> Join the club. And, uh, as you know, it's difficult. It is. And as I fleshed out some of those things that I was actually going through, recapturing them was easy because I don't, I, for some reason, I don't have PTSD. So it was easy to recapture them and like really what was my point there and what was my point in chapter two and what was my point in chapter three and uh, the, not intended for anybody else's eyes. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I printed out just kind of in the tape, typewriter paperwork or form three copies and then he, uh, with some mentoring, the guy said, hey, let's go to publishers, and a hundred publishers turned us down. Hmm. So I said, well, it's dead. And then out of nowhere, a, the, the first publisher picks it up and said, well, I'll publish it, but if you, uh, you'll have to pay for, it's called independent publishing, you'll have to pay for the edit and pay for the mm -hmm. printing. Mm -hmm. So we did that and printed 300 copies on first print. Never thought that anybody would would pick it up and find value. And then several thousand copies later, it did rather well, but it was just Stacy and I doing the marketing. And uh, so I thought it hit pretty well on the, like the, you know, the reader side. Most of the readers are from our point of view are women. Mm -hmm. Never intended that to be the case. I can and, see why. Uh, cool. Women in business have actually picked up more uh, leverage, and we've created a business out of the book. Terrific. So you've probably found yourself in this, somewhat the same position. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about some of the 13 tasks mm -hmm. that you ask uh, your kids to perform. Um, we probably don't have time to get into all 13, but what, what were some of the more meaningful or powerful tasks and uh, the rationale mm -hmm. behind them? 
Well, the rationale behind each one was to expose what I'm coining as internal dialogue, what you're saying about yourself and your environment that dramatically affects the environment mm -hmm. or affects your performance. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the first few were to expose things that are tough to talk about, fear. I wanted them to expose the dialogue behind fear. And then uh, the third task, which I think is necessary to develop yourself is do something that you think is impossible mm -hmm. until it gets done. Mm -hmm. And uh, that task was to walk uh, 24 hours without stopping. Yeah, we are actually doing that this month. So thanks oh, for that idea. Yeah. <laughs> and in the middle of that, you'll hear what dialogue is. Right. It's subtle, it's seductive, it talks you out of everything mm -hmm. if you're not careful. Right. And it, it tends to want to agree with data, meaning it agrees that it's painful, sit down, don't do anything. It agrees since you're puking, it's probably not the right thing to do. When you begin to master it and overcome it, you can take six more steps and then six more and six more and six more and then you finally get to 24 hours. So after completing that, you realize that you spend an inordinate amount of time talking yourself out of everything. Right. So why not spend a lot of time mastering that not talking yourself out of it anymore? Because mm -hmm. your body's going to do what you ask it. Mm -hmm. So learn that there's a dialogue there and then learn how to ad adapt the dialogue instead of have it agree with everything. And uh, so having put a lot of clients through it now, they, it's the summarily realize that it talks you out of everything. Mm -hmm. Talks you out of, uh, uh, just leave it there. It talks you out of everything. So we spend all of our time mastering that with the client. You make your clients walk 24 hours? Uh, uh, no. no. <laughs> I was going to say, good for you, man. That would be burly. No, we've done that. Uh, I've had six events that are 24-hour events that people have come that, that want to experience that and and I can do it, but I've talked myself out of it all the time, too. But, uh, yeah. That's terrific. So what else? What are maybe a couple more, and then we'll, uh, I'll let you go. Uh, one was uh, for my daughter. I wanted her to realize the power that a woman has mm. uh, to be in a relationship with a man and listen to uh, that being in a relationship isn't giving up anything. Mm -hmm. You don't give up your life as a woman. I think I lost you. Well, folks, it uh, looks like Thomas's Wi-Fi just went kaput. So we're going to do this again with Tom. What a great guy, huh? That was just terrific. So we'll wrap it up there. Till then, see if you can find a copy of Unbreakable. Check it out on October 27th when it comes back out, and we'll give him a little push then. Thomas Shea, and the book is Unbreakable. So um, that's it. Folks, uh, awesome stuff. Think about what you're going to do about it. And I recommend you join us on our monthly challenge here where we're going to take Tom up on his advice and walk for 24 hours and 10-minute breaks. So you can break as often as you want, but no fewer or no longer than 10 minutes. It's quite a challenge. All right, so uh, hoo-yah, train hard, stay safe, have fun. This is Coach Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast signing off. Till next time. Make sure 